And we're back. So it's been a few months. Uh, it's been a long time. I shouldn't have left you, etc., etc. Um, and this is going to be just a short run of episodes to try to uh, uh, hold folks over. If there's any diehard fans of this show, which, let's be real, uh, just want to get some new content out into the world. Um, so we are looking at stuff um, through mid-May, which is today uh hopefully through the end of june 2021 uh before i take another break to start gearing up for the fall semester um and start banking interviews um hopefully hopefully to run between august and december fingers crossed um so that said our first episode back on this mini season is with stefan Kalenbach, a PhD student in political science at the University of California at Riverside. This is episode 68 of On Yard Tracks. dissertation and working through different projects on that and I my dissertation sort of broadly speaking is about um, technology and politics and I focus in on big data as sort of a broad concept and ask the question like how does it impact our political lives how does it impact how we operate in the world and so the um, chapter that I'm currently working on right now, and so this will probably change a lot by the time <laughs> it's finished, but uh, the chapter that I'm working on right now, I've sort of tentatively called uh, Technoplatonism. So it's, it's me trying to work out how technology, this sort of big data structure, um, influences our epistemologies, how we think about the world, what we think about in terms of knowledge, and the sort of built-in argument about sort of a positivistic epistemology that exists in tech, right? So the framing that I sort of am thinking about in this way is like if you take something like Google search, for example, right? There's an implicit argument in there that when you search something into, put it into the Google search bar, you're getting some form of like truth back. That there's some form of truth that exists that Google is able to have access to through this mechanism of big data and then present it to you, right? That's the, that's the sort of implicit argument. And you find this also in terms of uh, like it's how Facebook talks about their social network too. If uh, you read things that 
say Mark Zuckerberg has said, or the sort of public descriptions of Facebook, they talk about mapping an existing social network that's there. That's how they sort of defend their actions. It's like <laughs> we are mapping a thing that exists in the world that maybe was sort of ephemeral, but was sort of truth and out there, and we're just sort of putting a, a digital face to it. Mm-hmm. And so there's this this connection here that seems to me to be running kind of counter to a lot of the debates that were had in the philosophy of science or in sort of the development of like postmodern thought in general, where there was this big contestation about truth and placing things in context and recognizing their sort of relationality of sort of our existences in the world. And in my mind, sort of like tech and these sort of algorithmic tools like sideline that whole debate and just make an assumption about truth and the access to truth that these companies or these sort of individuals have. And so it's sort of Platonistic in that sort of broad sense. This is heavy. (laughs) (laughs) This is jumping right in. This is heavy, man. Wow. Um where do I even start with this? I wrote down Google equals truth. <laughs> I mean, there is that sort of... I, I was talking to... Uh, I went to a conference and ended up talking to a lot of librarians, like mm-hmm. library science people, information science people, which is way outside of my like political theory like framing, which is where I sort of exist. Mm-hmm. And we had this conversation about card catalogs mm-hmm. and how there was a, a, almost a nostalgia for the era of the card catalog. And for me, I, like initially, I was like, that seems very strange. Like <laughs> I grew up at, like on the very tail end. Like I remember going to a library that had a card catalog, but like right as they were getting rid of them. Mm-hmm. And so these librarians are talking about it and then as part of the conversation it sort of came out that like the idea of a card catalog is the argument the card catalog is making is physical it's there you can tell just by its like sheer physicality that somebody made an argument about the classification schemes that are going on Mm -hmm. that this thing is close to this like this one book is close to this other book because somebody made a decision to put those cards next to each other Mm -hmm. whereas in a, like Google or an online search or something like that, that whole argument is completely veiled, and it's just input question, receive answer. Mm-hmm. And so that like that question of getting a sort of truth out of Google comes out of I think that sort of obfuscation, that that veiling of the argument. Yeah, and like the card catalog isn't sponsored. Yeah, <laughs> either, right. you know? not, there's no advertising, right? <laughs> there's no need for Google to like push you to join Gmail when you <laughs> are using a card catalog. I, I can't, I can't pay the card catalog, you know, ten million dollars to get my book about, uh, you know, the moon causes cancer yeah. up up front is the first yeah. result for everybody's search, which has to like, yeah, I mean that. Thinking about how how many how many people Google stuff and how like once you brought up Facebook like I I can't stand Facebook <laughs> as like a necessary evil um, that it is for so many people uh, like yeah just this idea that like I saw it on Facebook and so it must be true um, I remember when that was a joke and now it's like really how people <laughs> people interact with the world around them I saw it shared on a Facebook group. So it must be true. 
yeah, there's there's some element of so uh, yeah, I think there's two sort of elements of that, right? There's the one element of like the person-centered viewpoint, right, where you're saying, well, I don't fully understand how this system works, but it's sort of set up in our society as like a reliable or um, sort of useful metric, so they're can't, so it can't be bad, mm-hmm. right? There's like a presumption of goodness, right? Everybody uses Facebook, everybody engages with Facebook, so in some level, it must be good. And yeah, I think you're seeing that being undermined in a lot of ways, like sort of appropriately, but like because of Cambridge Analytica and like all of the like <laughs> discussions of uh, misinformation, that like inherent goodwill sort of come is being eroded on that side but on the on the sort of second viewpoint it's like from the perspective of like the tech itself it has this the same sort of we are sort of purveyors of like truth in that way and i think you get like there's there are there have been discussions around big data and i'm trying to remember who exactly this quote is from so my apologies to how this works, but like the discussion around, uh, probably better because I'm going to critique it. But um, <laughs> it's, uh, oh, it's like around right. this idea that with a big enough data set, you don't need theory, right? If you had a big enough data set, you don't need to do hypothesis testing because you can just run all of the analytics and it will just tell you what patterns exist. That's a claim on. Sort of that's an epistemological claim. That's a claim that at in a collection of a large enough data set there is a sort of form of truth in there somewhere that that data has like privileged access to, or there's like mm-hmm. a privileged mm-hmm. form of knowledge that you get to only by sort of running these analytics on these really large data sets that you wouldn't otherwise have. And so then to me I was teaching, like, I'm a political theorist, I teach Plato a lot, like, intro to political theory, like, we read the Republic, and I was like, this is, like, looking at sort of forms, it's finding higher forms of knowledge, it's looking at the idea of the good, there's even an element of, like, philosopher king going on here, (laughs) that if you have access to this knowledge that tells us truth about society, you should have political power. That, that that logic sort of follows. So, and there's something sort of very scary about how naturally that logic follows. Yeah, I'm glad that you said Philosopher King because I was thinking even a higher plane than that, right? Like when you said that uh, the idea of looking at a data set can lead to some sort of like ultimate truth is really like godlike, <laughs> right? And, and we're 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 putting so much faith in this, and then like. Where in, in like in my silo, <laughs> in 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 criminology and uh, sociology, like looking at all of the problems with um, big data and like AI and stuff like that, just in terms of like various biases that are encoded in the algorithm, uh, it, it really is like this. Like, the more I think about it, like hearing hearing about your work, like there is this like deification. Of. Yeah, and and like it's interesting because there's a lot of work on on biases, a lot of really really good work being done on algorithmic biases, and a lot of pushback by like these scholars against the idea that biases are things that can be that that are mistakes, mm-hmm. right? <clears throat> so, for example, uh, Sophia Noble talks about that in her book Algorithms of Oppression about this this pushback against. Um, 
encoding or framing biases as mistakes, right? The algorithm is biased in this way, and so that's not a, I don't know, it's a, it's a reflection on us as the people who created the algorithm, not the use of algorithms to do the thing in the first place. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's worth sort of pushing, like to taking that argument even further, mm-hmm. right? Saying yes, and but and thinking about how the data itself, the algorithm itself is an argument, is not this sort of vast truth-telling mechanism, but is a thing that comes out of context that, the idea of like raw or natural data is not a thing, is a thing that is always constructed, it's always <laughs> developed. And so sort of forefronting that as the sort of next step of that argument and saying like, there's no point at which we're not going to have bias in data. Mm-hmm. It's always going to be there because we're always going to have to create it. Yeah, yeah. But then for for the people who are... Uh, I don't want to say invested, that feels like the wrong word, but who subscribe to this idea that that you can find this ultimate truth in there, then it becomes this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Because you're, you're creating data that is ultimately going to confirm or support the status quo, <laughs> right? And then you can be like, look, like it's okay that we live in this awful world because the data says it's the best we can do. Yeah, and that's sort of getting at uh, an earlier chapter of the dissertation where I like dive, dive into that, nice. which is this question that, that I sort of got a little sort of, I don't know, classically philosophical, and I called it like, we're living in the perpetual present mm-hmm. because data doesn't allow us to fully engage with history or like a transformative sort of future because mm-hmm. either one of those things destroy the utility of the data we have collected, Right. The data, like, if you want to do predictive statistics, you have to make an assumption about the future, that the future is going to be mm-hmm. sort of roughly analogous with where we are now, yep. or else your predictions don't work, yep. right? And the same thing, like, if you're talking about the past, if you want to code something as data, you have to put it in a framework that is codable, mm-hmm. right? And so human, like feelings or traumas or emotions or historical legacies all sort of fall out of that that picture. So it sort of centers us in the sort of perpetual, perpetual present. And mm-hmm. I feel like that's, anybody who's like, wait, is it 2021 or is it 2001 or is it 2007? Like, like the fact that the last 20 years sort of have seemed really almost stagnant in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. I feel like belies that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I mean, I love that I have this podcast that I get to <laughs> like dork out with uh, folks like you, man. Uh, so I have recently um, gotten really involved in like the sociology of revolutions and um sort of taking a, a weird turn in my career towards studying um, revolutionary theory and biographies and histories and, and all of that. Um, and one of the things that really blew my mind um, when, I first, when I first started doing this was an argument um, made by a, a guy named Chalmers Johnson who said that the, the really the purpose of the academy is to replicate the status quo. Uh, <laughs> that uh, 
in the United States, we, we believe in capitalism and individuality. And so, of course, um, economics and psychology are, are two incredibly popular majors because they tell students exactly what they already know, <laughs> right? And, and give them the tools to kind of, uh, confirm what they already know. Um, and so, like, what you're saying about, you know, history not being quotable, uh, really resonates down <laughs> that, that, uh, line of thought, right? Because, more and more we're seeing as universities become hyper, at least mine, hyper-focused on STEM, like if it's not codable, if it's not quantifiable, it's got no use. And then if it's got no use, then it, those programs are cut. But then ultimately what we're cutting is like our connection to <laughs> like humanity, right? Yeah. Like, like I, I bring this up like every time I sort of get in this way, but like Wendy Brown has a really useful argument about this in her book about neoliberalism which is called undoing the demos where she makes this big argument about the purpose of education is to sort of set people up to participate in democracy yeah like the purpose is to create a demos is to create this body public and the, and so she describes like the development of education in the united states in the middle of the 20th century as this incredibly radical idea, despite all of its limitations in terms of segregation and who's sort of allowed in, but it was this really radical idea that we are going to bring in a vast swath of our population in order to sort of prepare them to become a a democratic population, like Mm -hmm. a demos. And that that sort of structure has been undermined as the focus of education has sort of turned to outcomes, mm-hmm. right? And, and in a way, like following the sort of rise of STEM, it makes sense that if you think of, if you frame elites in society in a particular way, that those elites will want to sort of perpetuate the structure that made them elite. Yes. Right? That's the basic structure of power. And if we as a society in our or broad neoliberal structures that we live in, really value this sort of mindset, right? Engineering mindset, tech mindset, uh, out very outcome-focused, very um, uh, things that are monetizable very easily, right? You're looking at, it's, it's all about, well, get a STEM degree because it'll set you up for income. Mm-hmm. It'll set you up to be in these elite structures. It's not particularly surprising to me that those sort of structures are uh, kind of, supportive of the status quo because it's that's the status quo that gave them that sort of elite power yeah yeah um i have a i have a kind of nuts and bolts question about your dissertation and and i apologize it's probably really dumb Uh, it's like a chicken and egg question so how how are you doing a dissertation on on big data and um sort of like some of the like the ideas that you presented here uh in a way that doesn't <laughs> like using the using the data on big data to confirm that big data is bad. I guess it is like the question that's kicking around in my head. You know what I mean? Like how methodologically what's your yeah, what's your so approach? Methodologically I'm so I'm not sort of using big data in a in a methodological way. Okay. Right. So I'm not interested in the, the like nuts and bolts of the statistics. Okay. Of it. I'm good. I think about my research as like a work of like critical theory. In okay. A way, right. So it's about sort of viewing 
at a sort of larger level the structures of power that mm-hmm. are, are working in this system. Mm-hmm. So, as is probably very obvious at this point, I'm very influenced by Foucault, but I'm mm-hmm. also drawing a lot from things in the Frankfurt School, particularly like Marcuse's writings on technology. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is this sort of, right, this is why I went to Plato to make the, the comparison <laughs> earlier, right? It's that that's sort of the framing that I'm doing, trying to figure out. An, an earlier chapter looks at uh, the powers that tech companies have in society as a form of biopolitics, mm-hmm. as a way of that, that they seem to be doing things that mimic what states normally do. Mm-hmm. So it's more mm-hmm. looking at Outcomes, and so I define big data very widely. I, yeah. There's um, Kate Crawford is someone who just published a really amazing book on uh, big data and tech called mm-hmm. The Atlas of AI. But in an earlier work, she and a co-author make the argument that big data should be understood not just as a methodology, but like uh, they use the term a mythology as mm-hmm. well. That it's that it's this larger thing beyond just the sort of statistical data collection and, and analytics. It's beyond simply algorithms. It's sort of feeding into this larger structure. Okay. So I use it in this really broad way as try and, and part of, I think the dissertation really is almost a definitional project, right? It's mm-hmm. trying to define what big data is and what its impacts are. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. That's what I, I suspected, <laughs> but I, uh... I just somewhere in the in the the haywire connections in my mind um remembered uh again in like the revolutionary stuff um ways that like and this has nothing to do with what we've been talking about but like in the American Revolution they used like a lot of Greek um uh philosophy to justify the revolution, but then also the Tories used a lot of Greek philosophy, like the exact same Greek and Roman philosophers to, to justify um, remaining loyal to England. And so it just kind of struck me as like, you know, if the argument is that big data is bad because it confirms the status quo, then how, <laughs> how like people could maybe, I don't know, just like an interesting philosophical question about um, how you're approaching it. But I, I, I'm glad that there's no... <laughs> There's no problem there no, for you. There's no statistics. There's no statistics. Yeah. There's no math in my dissertation yep. for very important reasons oh, no, this- about my desire to not do math. <laughs> oh, this is just another example in the annals of this podcast of me just being a gibbering fool. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean it's a, it's a good question because it, it brings us into like, like how are we trying to frame these things that are happening when we it seems to me that we don't really have a great way of doing it, right? Like, how do we really try to grapple with, go back to Google, like the power Google has over society? Mm-hmm. It's really hard, not only because we, I feel like we tend to make a, a divide between the sort of the digital and the uh, analog or the sort of what's around us, and even though that, that line is being blurred more and more all the time, and we don't see all of the sort of behind the scenes, if you will, like stuff that's going on, the the ways in which the sort of data about individuals is sort of tracked and shared across the web, how the like how advertising is both this massive moneymaker, but also incredibly intrusive, but also strangely not useful, and 
all of these sorts of things are, are fitting together. The ways in which they interact with states or governments in various ways. Like, there's lots of these little pieces that seem to be operating in this sort of structural way that's kind of hard to get a grasp on. Yeah. And, like, again, going back to stuff about reinforcing the status quo, right? Like, there was, uh, I mean, it, it wouldn't have gotten mainstream news coverage, but there was a little bit of a of an uproar this past week because uh, somebody studying Palestine had their Google Drive nuked by Google um, because their articles on, like, Palestinian liberation were deemed terrorism by Google, yeah. and they lost all of that work. Um, or Zoom... <laughs> <laughs> uh, shutting down those events, or uh, our podcast is not on Google Play because Google will not like to to have your stuff hosted there. You have to promise to not be critical of them, and I'm like, fuck that! <laughs> like I'm not doing that. No way. Have you followed the uh, the uh, the Tim McGebrus like discussion of she was uh, an ethic a Google ethicist who wrote this paper that was like. All told, like I've read this paper, not incredibly like firebrandy. Mm-hmm. Right? It was it was like she's an ethicist. They brought her in to discuss the ethics of AI and machine learning, and she wrote a paper that uh, with a number of co-authors and a bunch of things. Um, I think it was called "The Danger of Stochastic Parrots." Mm-hmm. Or stochastic parrots is in the title because it's hilarious. <laughs> um, but it's about like uh, like. AI, machine learning, like, text generation uh, sort of machine learning developments. Mm-hmm. Um, like, OpenAI is one of them. And they, um, right, and so she is investigating the, like, secondary outcomes of this, right? Like, the, the power usage that goes into training an algorithm on, like, a text reading algorithm on just millions and millions of pages of text. And the sort of the what that carbon outcome is, that output of uh, just sort of on the environment and where those data centers are located and who gets impacted by those sorts of things. And she got sort of summarily fired from Google because of this. And it's this ongoing, just complete sort of saga of harassment and just all sorts of terrible things that are happening to her for this paper that all told, I mean... I think she, I don't know her, but I think she would agree, is sort of a mild critique of how this is. It's like, hey, maybe we should think about the fact that we're using up all of this power in these very poor global South countries. Like, that's sort of the outcome, and and also, we're not really sure that we're doing anything useful when we're doing this. Like, <laughs> the end. Right. And so, and the fact that, you know, they train all of these, like, text algorithms on, like, scraped Reddit data. So it's exactly as terrible as you might imagine, right? It's xenophobic, it's, like, misogynistic, it's racist in various ways, and it's just sort of because of the training data that they've used. And bringing those critiques up are just sort of ways of getting pushed out of the Google system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's terrifying. Uh, I don't. I don't want to move on to the teaching stuff, um, a part of your work, just yet because you'd brought up Facebook, and I think people listening to this would be uh, upset with me if I didn't ask something along the lines of uh, Facebook. First of all, how dare they? <laughs> right? Like the the idea that you said that they 
they're now marketing themselves as like we're we're making real this thing that already existed and was very ethereal um to me kind of smacks of like you can't call us the bad guys when you guys are are really the bad guys yourselves (laughs) yeah i i mean it's so this it's it's strange because that's always how they they operated. Like even like if you read some of the histories of Facebook and things, like it's always, hey, you have this social network, let's put it online. Yeah, right. That was always the sort of motivating quality of these sort of social network places. But yeah, it's it's the uh, I, I don't know if it's just the thing I love. The thing I love and hate about Facebook is that it's so personalistic. Right. If you think about it in terms of like governing structures, right? Like, Google is definitely, like, an oligarchic sort of system. There are, like, top-level people who sort of cycle in and out of Google and do this. Facebook is, like, personalistic, right? Mm -hmm. It's all, like, Zuckerberg and and, uh, Sheryl Sandberg all the time, and it's mostly Zuckerberg, and what he wants and his ideologies and how he thinks about the world is how Facebook operates, right? There isn't a a sort of brain trust at the top (laughs) there. It's just him. And so he has and says, like, that connecting people is an unmitigated good. And anything bad that comes out of it is sort of counteracted by the unmitigated good of connecting people. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's just despite, like, literally everything that sort of happens, it's just they always come back to this, well, we are always a force for good in the world. And so what we're doing, therefore, is by definition a force for good in the world. Yeah, even though there's no evidence. There's no actual harm in these sorts of things, right? You can draw a direct line connection between Facebook's, like, to get, let's get real dark and then we'll go to <laughs> something else, right? You can draw a direct line connection between Facebook's sort of internet.org where they were putting out um, uh, they were putting out sort of free internet to people in the global south and so they were sending, like if you get a phone it's automatically sort of connected to the internet and it has Facebook on it as a sort of default mechanism for doing this and one of the places they did this was in Myanmar and you can draw a direct line connection from that through the sort of the Muslim persecution that happened and the subsequent genocide because it all happened on Facebook. And it was a, like a direct result of having this his internet access that was granted to the population and the sort of inherent like trustworthiness of Facebook as being a default provider on that network. And you read these things and, like, Facebook had nobody who spoke the language to monitor any of these, like, genocidal comments when members of the government are calling for expulsion and genocide. Like, there's no oversight there. Mm-hmm. So, But even despite all of those things, Facebook comes back and says, no, we're still a force for good in the world. I can remember maybe, like, 12 years ago or so when uh, there started to be this massive exodus from Facebook and people were comparing the rise and what they thought at the time was the the inevitable fall of Facebook as like it, it the the models were very similar to like the rise and fall of infectious diseases <laughs> and it's and it's proven to be such an apt comparison the way that yeah. social media has uh, 
sort of become like a almost like a parasite and i i really wish that 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 uh argument would have made it further out into the zeitgeist um and people recognize facebook for the for what it is yeah <laughs> you know um all right cool so I have to imagine that um, bringing some of your work into the classroom is a little bit challenging for students who have grown up in a world of of being connected since they were probably very small children. Yeah, I, I, so I would say number one. Uh, I mean, just uh, I'm not like I'm not a luddite in in the sort of derogatory sense of the term. I am still very connected, like met for the podcast over a social network, yeah, right? Yep. We've talked via Twitter about how this is going to work. So yep. just the, I don't want to, um, I mean, again, I'm a political theorist, so there's a, a little part of my brain that's like, you should just go live in a cave and read old books for forever. Yep. <laughs> there's a little bit of that that's always in the back of my mind. But um, yeah, so I don't have, like, I have used technology in various ways in the classroom. I've taught online for a very long time, even like pre-pandemic. Um, I was sort of very involved in doing that out of practical reasons and in addition to um, sort of access reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, it allowed me to teach at community colleges without commuting to them, mm-hmm. which is very helpful when you're trying to get a degree. and. Mm-hmm teach and survive. Um, so there is that. I would say I haven't had a chance to like teach my dissertation or teach my research yet. I, I, I've taught sort of the, the source material of mm-hmm. the people I'm reading and how those things are going. And that always goes over rather well. Um, in upper division, like upper division classes, reading these sorts of more in-depth things. Mm-hmm. So... So have you have you been able to to even um, dip your toes in a little bit, like talk to students about like, uh, or maybe connect some of this stuff just to the internet in general, and and sort of gauge their reactions to maybe some of the stuff they were talking about earlier, like Google or, or Wikipedia being like this uh, universal truthsayer, truth teller. Yeah, I. I- have found that, I don't know, maybe it's just sort of my locale, where my students are, they're already primed to be sort of skeptical about a lot of these things, mm-hmm. right? We, I, I taught a class where we read uh, the Sophia Noble's book that I mentioned earlier, Algorithms of Oppression, and we read that as sort of part of the text of the class, and that book is a sort of masterful, like, deconstruction of the ways in which Google search is racist, Right, that if you search uh, certain things at all, like if you for like the big sort of motivating metaphor of the story is if you search the when she was writing it, I think it's changed a little bit now. But if you search the phrase "black girls" in Google, you'll get pornography. Mm-hmm. If you search "white girls," you won't. Mm-hmm. Right, like that's the sort of like motivating like there's something going on here, difference. And I so we read this book in and we read this book alongside a lot of like really heavy philosophical texts. Like, we, we read Derrida in this class and then went to this this work on sort of Google. And um, and I found students were very sort of primed for that. They're like, this, this sort of fits with how we're seeing the world. Now, some of it, you know, I hadn't thought about it in this way, and 
sort of framed it out, but it wasn't like, how dare this book attack Google? <laughs> it was sort of like, oh, <clears throat> this I can see how this fits into my experiences in the world. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which is interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so how about in general then? Like, What would you say some of the the challenges are of, of teaching political theory? I think, so there are, there are a couple um, that are, I mean, political theory as a discipline, I, I'm sort of an advocate for political theory. I think it's very useful, especially in a, a social science sort of world that is moving more into this sort of quantified sort of framework um, Lots of statistics and political science, um, that sort of is where the discipline seems to be going. So being an advocate for the theoretical and those things, I think, is something that's very important. While still admitting that it's a discipline started by white guys, about white guys, meant to read white guys. Like, that's the fundamental framework. Like, if you read any introduction to political theory or political philosophy syllabus, it's just like a march through of like standard Western, Plato, Aristotle, Machiavelli, Locke, Hobbes, Rousseau, John Stuart Mill, like the the hits just keep coming. (laughs) Um, Maybe if you're fancy, you'll do something like you'll do Maimonides as like a Jewish scholar or you'll do some medieval Christian thinking from like the Middle East, you do Aquinas or somebody. But it's all very, but it's this. It's a Western canon, and the discipline is based on a Western canon. And so, trying to do the balancing act of if you're going to be talking about any of these things, everybody uses the Western canon as the common language, even in the critique of it. Mm-hmm. Right. So, if you come in with a student who knows nothing about political theory, it's really hard to drop them right into. I, or at least, in my opinion, it's really hard to drop them right into the critique, mm-hmm. right? To just be like, here, we're going to talk about how this is all about, this This one that you know nothing about is only about old white men, and when these really useful uh, critics or people who are doing other things are talking about them, you'll have no frame of reference. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I really try to sort of try to, at least in the introductory class, like balance that and be like, okay, we're going to read this canon because it's a common language, it's everybody talks about Locke and Hobbes and all of these people, but then we're going to sort of take half of the class and sort of look at the critique of this canon. So it's like, here's the canon, here's the critique of it. Here's the critical race critique of it. Here's the feminist critique of it. Here's uh, people engaging it from a non-Western or cosmopolitan perspective and trying to show that it's not a sort of monolithic sort of singular good mm-hmm. um, about that. I'd say the other major problem is the people who are doing these critiques are very modern and very brilliant, but it means that their work is very hard. Yeah. <laughs> right? So some of my very favorite things that, I'm, that I read is really hard to introduce into an introductory level class just because it's very, it's just very dense. And I've tried. I've done um, some of that. And it goes well, but it definitely is like, okay, we're going to read a lot less of this. We're going to go a lot slower. We're going to try to frame through, sort of work through it. And it's valuable. Mm-hmm. And so I'm 
thinking of trying to do more of that. I find every time I worry that something is too hard, I'm surprised by how well students hang with it. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's a a really difficult tightrope to walk, right? Like sometimes things are challenging because it's being like unnecessarily gatekeepery. And then other times it's challenging because it has to be challenging. Right. And it, it really does, uh, merit, let's say the, some of the academic, um, lingo, you know, like I, I have many books that I've, I've thought about assigning in class, but then I, I really worry about, you know, students are going to pay a lot of money for something that is ultimately unreadable to an ordinary person. Um, and then it becomes like a measure of your value as a, or your ability as a teacher, right? How can you translate something that's like 50% gobbledygook yeah. into, into it? Right? Yeah. And it's, it's hard. I mean, I did this, uh, like I mentioned earlier, like I started my class on sort of the way we dealt with technology by reading Derrida. We read specters, we read a big chunk of specters of Marx as a way of trying to frame out what the mod, like our modern situation. And that book is real hard. Um, but I don't know. I find that if you go in with a mindset of, this is hard. We are going to work through it together. This isn't a me telling you how this is working. This is a sort of us working through a text together that's hard for everybody. It brings students in more and mm-hmm. you can sort of have that discussion and it sort of opens it up and say, hey, I don't understand what's going on in this page. It's like, great, neither do I. Let's try <laughs> to figure it out. And it, and it has that, it has a sort of way of opening up a conversation more. Yeah, which is really ultimately why we're here, right? Yeah. Not to act as the uh, the old school sort of, I am the be-all, end-all. I am the light and the way and the truth model of teaching. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm just curious, uh, like, what got you interested in, in the relationship between political theory and big data to begin with? I mean, this is it's such a huge question. I'm just... I'm just Really curious what how you got you here. Ask my advisor; it's too big. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I've always been interested in in technology mm-hmm. and the way that technology has operated. Um, I, I think it was just sort of growing up in the sort of early era of the internet is this sort of new thing. Watching it change, being part of that sort of early tech culture um and but i was always interested in it when i was an undergrad i was interested in like technology and warfare like i got really Mm -hmm. into drones and worked my undergraduate advisor is an expert on sort of the theoretical implications of like drone warfare and like war theory um so i came at it from that way i did a little bit of like literature stuff where i read like read Mark Twain and thought about like his views on technology and politics. Mm-hmm. So it's always been like in my head about how technology impacts the ways in which we operate. Mm-hmm. And I really think it, I got, when I started graduate school, I got interested in neoliberalism and the questions of neoliberalism coming through Wendy Brown, which I talked about a little earlier, like thinking about the ways in which are, I sort I read some of her books, I read some uh, late Foucault, and it was really sort of 
like clicking things into place for me of like, oh, this is how I've seen these things in the world. It's this how the world seems to be working. How can we think about these things? And the question of the move to data really came from I was reading or like rereading uh, Discipline and Punish again and in preparation to teach it and going through it. And there's this section, it's, very, it's a very quick section, like maybe a paragraph in the middle of the book where he talks about sort of classification and the need to collect data and use data to map out classifications, right? And you can, if you sort of are familiar with Foucault, you can sort of see his connections there to his discussions in the order of things, and he's sort of bridging that discussion and his later discussions of neoliberalism and biopolitics. But I read that section and it just like struck me. I was like, this seems like Facebook. It seems like tech companies. It seems like, not like exactly like predicting these things, but it's like, sure. this is an insight that has we've sort of taken and run with. Uh, in our society now. And so I started to poke around in this way. And like all dissertations, this my dissertation was, in my original thinking, just a chapter of a larger dissertation on sort of neoliberalism and how it impacts society. There's one like, hey, tech does this thing. And I started digging into like setting up that research. Just like, oh no, there's a whole, <laughs> like this is what I'm really interested in. This is the thing that I'm more most excited about doing. It's like, I'm just going to do sort of this whole discussion, mm -hmm. right, that thing yeah. about a dissertation, you start with a big, a big, like, <laughs> career-long topic and you just keep whittling it down until it's this tiny little slice of what you thought you were going to do. But still, like, a really big undertaking. Yeah. <laughs> but still is somehow the biggest thing you've ever thought about, yeah. Yeah, it sounds like you've got, like, the next 25, 30 years or so of your career yeah. laid out right there, especially as, as AI continues to develop and all these ethical questions and, you know, the big tech companies continue to grow and and uh, almost literally reinvent the wheel <laughs> in so many different ways, right? Like, you, you, are, you are set. <laughs> yeah, I, more questions than time. I just have a whiteboard of just, like, all, like, anytime things come up. It's like... But then there's, like, the other thing is there's a whole question of, like, okay... All of this, in my mind, is descriptive, right? What, mm. Here's what's going on. And then there's, like, the big looming question of, like, what do we do? Like, what's yeah. the next step? How do we, like, reclaim our agency? How do we, like, make these moves in such a way that doesn't uh -huh. just re-entrench the problem? Yeah. So, like, there's the move to, like, pay people for their data. You sort of see this. Like, Gavin Newsom, my governor in California... Uh, is you see made claims like this? I, I say this as the recall. I like see the ticker for the recall effort going forward. It's like oh, that's going to be a whole other thing. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, he like he said things about well, we should have a thing where if Google is using your data, they have to pay you for it. And you see this come out in other sort of tech things. So, like this seems like a terrible idea. This is not the way to sort of have liberation from this. <laughs> mechanism, right, is not to entrench it as a capitalistic good and then punish people who view their privacy more than money. Yeah. Right? Like, there's... <laughs> I, I feel, like, sick to my stomach at that yeah. idea. I'm just thinking of, like, I'm not, I'm not somebody who worries about, like, fraud against this stuff, but, like, it just seems, I don't know, almost as, like, a type of 
weird capitalistic welfare almost like we're going to exploit your data uh here you go here's 20 bucks a month so we can yeah. subscribe to you <laughs> and, and like facebook literally did this they got in a huge amount of trouble because they paid teenagers 20 bucks a month for like except like additional access to their data yeah and it's like these these are sort of famous like i don't think this is i don't think this is the way forward yeah it's uh, no bull <laughs> Yes. <laughs> it's so upsetting. It's so unsettling. Oh my gosh. Um, so I think that's a good, a good way to branch into the, the last thing that I wanted to talk to you about. So, um, one of the things that I have, I have really decided to dedicate my career to is public scholarship. You know, this is, you know, the purpose of this podcast is, is to give folks who are early career researchers, um, untenured in any way, you know, a chance to highlight your work. But because we're putting it out there for free, um, I, I think it's important that we we think about like if somebody were to stumble onto this, you know, I, and we title it. Um, my producer Mark and I title it "Google Equals Truth" as <laughs> whatever way to get uh, to get people to listen. Um, somebody listens to this and they're and they're still play that algorithm up for our benefit. Right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> make it as like clickbaity as possible. <laughs> Seven ways that you didn't know Google is the truth. Really <laughs> lean into like that that cult. <laughs> yeah. uh, what do you What do you think ordinary people should should understand or should know about uh, the work that you're doing? Because it's really incredibly important. You know, um, like if some if somebody who is not a, an academic or not a political theorist who isn't familiar with the the folks that you've been referencing, yeah. what do you think they should take away from this? I, I think the biggest thing that I would like, sort of the big takeaway for people in my work is to be sort of critical about what sort of technological things are out there and maybe recognize that things don't have to exist just because we can make them. <laughs> yes. Right? And I think there is a, a inherent trust that is or goodwill that tends to be brought up by that, that sort of came up really like cynically by these tech companies by giving away things for free you build up a lot of public trust right google says hey i'll get you anywhere you need to go in the world with google maps and you can just use it for free or here we'll give you email for free or we'll give you access to server space with google drive and these sorts of things and it's just this this it feels very generous, right? And so that builds up this goodwill that they can then sort of use when it comes to fighting regulation or pushing back in other ways or sort of framing things in different ways. So I think the main takeaway here is to recognize that there's not much difference in my mind on like a structural level between a tech company and an oil company. <laughs> we're both reliant like we're reliant on oil companies for mm -hmm. the very for our existence in society even if you don't drive a car it's like our electricity is based on oil you're plugged into the grid like this is it's a fundamental part of our society in the same way that we're plugged into the internet and we're plugged into google and we're framing these in this way but when it 
oil company testifies before Congress, you're generally not on the oil company's side. <laughs> right? Maybe you're not on, on, the, on Congress's side either, but I think there's like a sort of healthy skepticism about like, okay, this is a company that's going to try to do whatever it can to advance itself, and I, the individual, am not necessarily the target of their beneficence, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not the, the well, they're not going to try to be generous to me. And I think having that mindset towards a tech company is healthy, right? To say, Google is interested in giving me things because they perceive a benefit from that. And I should be aware that in many cases, I'm both product and resource. <laughs> very much like organized crime, right? Not saying that Google is organized crime, but it's like an extortion racket, you know? Mighty nice uh, email setup you got there. It'd be a shame if something happened to it. Yeah, and you've bought into this, all of your emails are there, and so if we're going to chip away at some privacy protections, you're probably Mm going to let us because we've ingratiated ourselves into your life to such an extent. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, it, it's strange because even I have a hard time thinking about it. Like, think about your life in 2005, like pre Gmail, pre Google Ascendance, pre Facebook Ascendance, right? Like, when I went to college, I remember that, like, it was the, the thing you got to do when you got to college was to create a Facebook account because it was only on college campuses and it was only sort of cloistered in those places. Mm-hmm. Um, Right, and so thinking back about like how did we sort of operate in the world at these points in time seems incredibly foreign to us. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, at least to me, right? And thinking about how we like what would a world post Google look like <laughs> is really hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're you're a hundred percent right. Right, like I don't think people appreciate how much stuff is in has just become ingrained and like i don't know this is a little bit of a tangent i guess but i was i was thinking the other day um about like so i grew up in the 80s and 90s and very much steeped in 80s and 90s science fiction (laughs) about robots taking over the world one day and then you see that the the nypd has spent like what like 1.6 billion dollars or whatever it was in in developing a robot dog (laughs) Yeah, the, like Boston Dynamics dog. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like this is so obviously a bad idea. <laughs> and did you not watch the Terminator? Did you yeah, not watch exactly. the Matrix? This is a horrible idea. And then having to go into into classes that I teach where students are thinking about where I'm trying to get students to think about justice issues, and now having to be like, I never thought that I would ever see the day where I have to think about where I have to talk about like Imagine that you have a robot dog, <laughs> and is the robot dog sentient? What happens if you abuse your robot dog? Like, <laughs> like all of this stuff about like AI rights. <laughs> That's even saying it. Like, I feel a little bit ridiculous right now, but it's it's obvious. Like, I mean, it's we're like ten years away from that stuff happening, and so thinking about like a post Google world, I I think. For some students, or for just for some ordinary folks listening to this, might be as might feel almost as ridiculous as being like, imagine there's no capitalism, or imagine that uh, 
we we shred the constitution or something like that. We're like, yeah. obviously, we could have a post Google world, but people's ability to imagine it, even though it's only fifteen years old, roughly, yeah, that, is that's the, that's the thing. It's not that like most people remember a pre Google world. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Fondly, <laughs> no. <laughs> Fondly, just, just to go to go right back to the card catalogs that you started yeah. talking about. Like I worked in a public library, and I can remember when they shifted over to having. Both the old card catalogs and then the new the new computers, um, and and sort of digitized the collection and like what a a crazy leap that was, and thinking like we're living in the future, yeah, <laughs> you know, no more having to like sort through all those old cards and then try to hunt for it in the library and I mean you still had to hunt for it in the library but now even that like pretty automated. Yeah. The, the the idea of having to wander through the stacks looking for something feels like going to a museum. <laughs> you know, this is how Grandpa used to get books. <laughs> yeah, even even getting a physical book in, in that way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and with the pandemic, right? Like a lot of university libraries have shut down, and so. Next year, we could have students who have been in college for a full year who have never set foot in the library in their library, and yeah. and ultimately may never right because of just some of the the to me weird rules on interlibrary loans and stuff that have been put in place and and weird other weird software programs that universities have foolishly signed contracts with. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's run- the whole that's the whole <laughs> other like that that was that's my biggest like crossover between like this work and the sort of pedagogical stuff that I'm interested in mm-hmm. is like this tech is everywhere it influences everything and very much influences education and specific i mean like we're in higher education and so that's what I see it but like the use of these private companies as a <laughs> basically as a or having access to a closed population to have mm-hmm. access to to exploit to draw economic resources from yeah yeah <laughs> i just i just remembered uh so the very beginning of the pandemic i was in the process of finishing developing an online class for my university and we have a contract with uh a company to provide like video basically um, for, for lectures. And so the deal was that I, I make all the material, they pay me for it. I, I can maintain, uh, the IP, but they also have the IP. So if I dropped dead today, they could still teach juvenile delinquency, um, with my words. And they wanted me to do video for it. And I was like, absolutely not. I'm not doing it because number one, I don't, like, I'm okay with using my written stuff after I leave, however I leave, but you're not having me on as a ghost if I'm employed somewhere else. And then number two, the company that we use is called Panopto. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and I was like... The that, ability for those companies to just be so <laughs> on the nose is like, come on. And that was the conversation yeah, I know. had with our our um, our digital uh, person. I was like, do you know like where they took that name from? And they, they weren't familiar, or at least they claimed that they weren't familiar. Um, I have no reason to think that they weren't being truthful. And so I explained it. I'm like, this is about this prison and like observing people without their knowledge. 
And they were like, well, I can, I promise you that Panopto is not doing that in your classes. And I was like, how would you know? <laughs> like, why would you trust them? Just because it's not in the contract, we know from what all these other, from what bear companies have done. Yeah. So if the, if Google and Facebook and, and everybody else are doing it, who's to say? And this is just not, I'm not making any claims about any, any illegal things that Panopto might be doing. But like, seriously, guys, change your name. It's kind of creepy. Yeah. <laughs> and you get that sort of everywhere, right? There's all of that sort of like encroachment. And, and, I, and I've sort of been thinking about this in the same sort of ways. Like if you look at the sort of powers that these companies, these like ed tech companies have over students and over instructors, it tends to be very structural. Like the power is like almost state-like, it's almost biopolitical. <laughs> yes. it's, it's the ability to manage actions and especially like proctoring software yes. right, are, are, are sort of majorly problematic in that way. Yes. But also in terms of framing students as sort of, I mean, in criminology, right, they're focuses of punishment, right? That's the, that's the locus by which we view students, right? If you think about even, like, plagiarism detection software, the, the logic behind a plagiarism detection software is that students will plagiarize. They are plagiarizers, and you have to view them as plagiarizers so that you can catch them because they're always trying to erode academic integrity or a road yeah. sort of good graces of education and that's really like that's a non-student centered way of viewing your relationship with students right i'm in the camp that those sorts of problems cheating pedagogy whatever those are are cheating uh plagiarism those are pedagogical problems mm-hmm. and you can fix them by pedagogy and not by technology yeah, like work towards building relationships with your students that make them not want to cheat and develop assignments that are not yeah. <laughs> cheatable. But like students cheat because they're overwhelmed and yeah. they have too much to do. And so if you just say, look, I don't care when you like, I don't care if this is late. I don't care if you turn it in next week. If you've got too much on your plate this week, then they'll do the work. And if the point is to do the work, mm-hmm. then yeah, then no problems. But I think if the question is, is the goal to have them do the work or is the goal to sort of manage and punish? <laughs> yeah. And I think that's, that there's a, there's a real shift there. Yeah. And, and I, I, I can hear people like who are in, invested in the, the manage and punish thing being like, this is how the real world works. Like, well, it doesn't. And in those areas where it does, it doesn't have to, <laughs> you know, yeah. this is where you're replicating the status quo, like stop it. <laughs> and I, and I, rege- I mean, I sort of saw this on Twitter a little bit. Like I reject the notion that college isn't the real world. Like, yeah. It's like, like my class is the real world. Like what, what do you mean? They're, they're <laughs> full adults. They're students. They're yep. people. They exist in the world. Like why is college not the real world? Yeah. Yeah. My, especially my students. If you're, I teach at a lot of community colleges. My uh, my home university, the PhD University, is has one of the highest percentages of minority students in the country. Like my students are working full time. They are juggling a million things. They're doing all sorts of like real world things. <laughs> 
it, that doesn't go away when they enter a classroom. It's not it's not some training ground for the world. It's it's the real world, and the work that they do in my class is not intended to set them up for an office job or something. The work they do in my class is to read interesting things and think <laughs> about things in interesting ways. Yeah. 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 I, uh, I've been reading... So this is like an, an epiphany that I had the other day, and, and we can talk about this and then wrap it up here because I've taken up so much of your time um, today. So I, I'm reading Franz Fanon for the first time in my career. Oh, yeah. And... Uh, talking about i mean it's the wretched of the earth is such a fascinating book <laughs> and yeah. and and approaching colonialism in this sort of antiseptic <laughs> sort of way i think is is brilliant um but i i was reading it and then talk like when he's talking in the very beginning about the the colonized intellectual mm-hmm. um i had this epiphany where like a few years ago, there was maybe it was even last year. Like the pandemic has destroyed my sense of time <laughs> completely. Yeah. Like, but like the decolonize your syllabus movement, and and folks pushing to take to to add more diverse writers and thinkers and 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 people to to the work that they're assigning students. Um, that's a good first step. But what actually decolonizing your syllabus means is stop doing cop stuff. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. Don't maybe even maybe even the notion of a syllabus is in itself yeah. like a colonial sort of thing. And I was sat there, I was like, my, I mean, "Whoa!" I'm not going to curse on your on your podcast, but uh, like you that, can, that's you like, can. That, like, the don't do cop shit movement <laughs> in in the classroom. That's my, that's my favorite like way of thinking about it. It's like, yeah, I'm not I'm not going to do that. And so, if you're getting through Fanon, I would recommend next to read Akilah Mbembe's Necropolitics. That's he he takes a lot from Fanon and it, and attempts to sort of bring it into a mod like what the modern post-colonial situation looks like. Um, he is I forget I think he is primarily located I don't remember what the university is called, but it's a university in Cameroon, but is also at Duke. Mm-hmm. So he sort of has splits between nice. his time there. And yeah, that book, that was another one that like, just blew my mind the first time I read it. And anytime I need some inspiration or I need like a framing on something, it's like, go back to that one over and over and over again. Yeah, I, I wish that I would have read him. I mean, clearly I didn't even know how to pronounce his name correctly. Yeah. So <laughs> I wish I would have had the chance to read it when I was in, in grad school uh, and was exposed to like the the standard sort of radical stuff that you get, at least in, in what critical criminology is. Um, cause I, I decided, you know, thinking towards returning to in-person teaching in the fall, uh, my syllabus, I'm going to go in there each day with the syllabus incomplete or the first day with the syllabus incomplete and say like, what do you want the policies to be in this class? Uh, here are our assignments to choose from. What do you guys want to do? <laughs> and, and may, and tell them that like, because this has been this has bugged me for the last year watching how universities have handled the pandemic uh going from a mindset where students are are treated almost universally as both customers and as children <laughs> and and realizing that like oh we need to treat you like adults who are stakeholders in the community if we're going to get you to abide by mask regulations and get vaccinated and everything like that um, but we can't because we've been selling you on, you know, come to our school because you have flat screen TVs on a rock wall yeah, <laughs> and uh, whatever else like that. <laughs> all just kind of 
uh, crystallized for me. Like this is not this is not working. This is not a this is not how I want my career to be. So we're going in on the first day and like, what do you want the attendance policy to be? No attendance policy. Cool. Yeah, I, I mean, I think this pandemic and moving forward, like, as as disruptive as it is, is also an opportunity to sort of refocus on, like, what you care about. Yes. Right? And I think, I, I mean, I was always sort of pushing in this direction, but in really when the pandemic started hit, hitting and we're moving all of the classes online and trying to sort of figure this out, I had been teaching online for, like, a long time. So this is... I've been teaching online now for five, six years, something like that. Um, So, like, I already... Like, the technical aspect of it was not difficult for me. um, But it was a chance to go, okay, this is this big disruption. Now I can start to think about, like, what do I want to care about? And what (laughs) do I not want to care about? Yeah. Right? What, What sort of things do I... And I think coming back into the classroom is going to present a similar opportunity, right? We're all going to be sort of excited and new to come back and be like, okay, what kind of conversations do I want to have? What mm-hmm. kind of, of ways do I want to sort of take advantage of this sort of, A, this newfound excitement of like, hey, we're all back. Hey, we're all mm-hmm. sort of putting it back together. And how do I want to sort of disrupt this structure and think about what I want to do? Yeah, I'm... I'm- planning a very disruptive <laughs> 20 fall 21 and beyond because it's I, I've, I've looked back at, at my career at my university and, and seeing myself going through the tenure track and then like sort of the post tenure what comes now into the I'm going to just try to cause good trouble not in like the corny way that's been memefied but like <laughs> I want to actually be more disruptive than just the guy who tells a lot of jokes and talks a lot of trash in class, yeah. <laughs> you know? And, and I'll say, like, I did things like I went fully into the, like, ungrading system mm-hmm. over for my upper division classes, especially over the pandemic. It was like, all right, we're just going to give feedback and you're going to do self-reflections and tell me where you think you are at the end of the class and we'll sort of have these ongoing conversations yeah, and framing things in those sorts of ways. And I think, I mean, I don't think that cl- those classes went perfectly, mm-hmm. I mean, but I don't think they went any worse than any of my other <laughs> classes that don't go perfectly. I, I sometimes hear or see that like people are worried about the problems or the anxieties or the issues that will cause from sort of radically shifting your perspective on how you're teaching. But we also have to recognize that the way that we're teaching currently also causes problems and anxieties and isn't perfect. And then sort yeah. of being as disruptive might not be as disruptive as you think it would be. Yeah. And just saying, hey, we're going to participate and build this trust and reframe how we're thinking about things is easier and a lot more fun than than you might otherwise imagine like you have a great time teaching the classes where you're on that sort of level playing field mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, a good spot to wrap up for today because I've taken up a lot of your time uh, oh, and you've problem. got you've got big things to think about <laughs> without uh, having to, to answer my my questions so thank you so much Stefan for your time thank you thank you so much for having me I had this was fun
Hey, Andy Wilzak again. So I uh, hope you enjoyed this week's show um, as much as we enjoyed putting it together. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you left us um, positive reviews, five-star ratings on iTunes and all of the other podcast places that you can do this stuff. And more importantly, this show thrives on word of mouth. So we are doing this completely through social media. All of the guests that we've had are people that I found on Twitter. <laughs> so if you are untenured and you are in any kind of academic discipline or you have an advanced degree and are working out in the field and you want an opportunity to come on the show and hype your stuff, um, please reach out. You can follow us on Twitter at Untenured Tracks or me at Hey Dr. Will. That's H-E-Y-D-R-W-I-L. Please send me a message on one or both accounts and we will book you on the show. It doesn't matter what your discipline is. I know that a lot of our previous interviews have been sociology and criminology based because that's my background, but I am open to anybody. So again, please rate and review the show. Tell your friends, tell your people about this and I'll see you next week. Bye.